All right, let's pray, and then we will we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for today, again, for the privilege to be uh, with your people, studying your word. We are thankful for how you have revealed yourself to us, how you have revealed yourself through history progressively, and we see your workings uh, and your ways, your grace uh, to stubborn, sinful people. So as we look at Judges tonight, help us to get a grasp on this book and the contents within it that we might more properly image you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we, uh, it's been two weeks since we met last, so it feels like a month when you take a couple of, couple of weeks off. Finished up Joshua last time. We are in a new section of the, of the Old Testament, right? So we have the first five books, which we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, and we're following the, the layout in Jesus' Bible, so how, how Jesus would have had it, you have the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So we are in the prophets now, specifically the former prophets. And this is the historical narrative of Israel's existence. So we're going to go Joshua, or Joshua through Kings. So next time we'll actually be in Samuel. We'll skip Ruth. We'll get to Ruth in the writings. Um, but next time we'll be in Samuel. Now, just as a, again, a brief a reminder to get us up to where we're at in the book of Judges. Um, you remember in Joshua, the nation of Israel, who is God's covenant people, uh, they're made that at Sinai and delivered through the Red Sea, all of that. God, God made them his covenant people. They finally entered into the promised land. And this was a fulfillment of that promise the Lord made to Abraham 400 years before in Genesis 15. Remember that covenant scene where God split the animal, or Abraham split the animals in half. God walks through those animals and says, I will give this land to your descendants, but not until the iniquity of the Amorites is completed and your descendants have been uh, in bondage for 400 years. So that has all taken place. There is that rebellious generation that we read about in Numbers that they were the first ones to come out of Egypt, but they grumbled and complained and rebelled against the Lord in the wilderness. Therefore, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and that generation has all died off. So then along comes the second generation with Joshua and Caleb, and they go into uh, the land. And the goal, you remember, it, it, in, in creation, in Eden, we see God's goal, is that, God's, that, that people would live in the presence of God. And know his blessing. And so through the nation of Israel, God is seeking to reestablish that program, right? So for Israel to go in and, and conquer this land, they're going to remove the sinful uh, nations from it. Yahweh's presence will dwell in the midst of them as they live in obedience. And it will be in the temple and, or in the tabernacle and then the temple. And the land will become like a new Eden. That's the goal. Uh, but again, sin always, always hinders that. Ultimately, and we read it this morning in our, in our call to worship, in Isaiah 11, verse 9, through Israel, the, the goal is that the glory or the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But Israel, again, always fails. Just as Adam failed in that task, Noah failed in that task, Israel as a nation fails in that task as well. Okay. Now, at the end of Joshua, if you just look at chapter 24, just flip over one page in your Bible, uh, at the end of Joshua, most of the land, or some of the land has been conquered, but there's still land that remains to be conquered, okay? Um, Joshua 
Remember, there's a covenant scene at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of Joshua, because every nation was to, or every generation was to recommit themselves to obeying the covenant that, that they had entered into with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. Remember, each generation comes along and says, all the words of the Lord that he has said, we will do. And they should commit themselves to do that. So that happens at Joshua. But notice like chapter 24, verse 19, there's a problem of Joshua 24, 19. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. And Moses has said the same thing in Deuteronomy. Unless you have new hearts, circumcised hearts, circumcised ears, you can't obey the Lord properly. So the nation uh, has this, this problem of not being able to obey. Notice also in chapter 24, verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord had done for Israel. So the problem that's going to happen in the nation of Israel is they're going to forget. They're going to forget the work that the Lord had done. And we talked about that, remember in Joshua, those scenes where they're establishing monuments to remind the nation of what God had done. Because when they forget, this monument will bear witness against you for your sin. And so many of the Psalms, uh, I think particularly of Psalm 78, recount the wondrous works God had done because the people were so prone to forget and forget what God had, had done for them. So Judges tells the story then of how the nation of Israel forgot all that the Lord had done for them and that they wandered further and further into sin and away from the Lord who had redeemed them. So I think I put this in your notes. Paul House's quote summarizes judges in this way. The overall impression is one of self-inflicted chaos suffered by a people who forget who they are and how they got to Canaan. Okay, So it is a, it is a depressing book in many ways, right? Uh, Typically, you don't go to Judges for your morning devotional and encouragement, right? Uh, unless you're, you like war or something like that, okay? Now, just a couple of, of notes about the book as a whole. The author, we're not sure who the author is. There's no author stated with actually a lot of the Old Testament. We don't, we don't have a, a specific author. Um, there's a number of scholars, and I would concur with them, because they're smarter than I and their arguments make a lot of sense, uh, that there's probably one author that wrote, most of Joshua through Kings. And he was kind of an editor, compiler, would take different things, compile it together. Um, because there seems to be a continuity between these books that at the very least shows this is a divine author, right? We understand that, that, that the, this is the Lord's word, but the human compiler, author, editor, whatever you want to, uh, to call that person, seems to have some, some continuity. Uh, the time of the writing is another, another uh, issue at hand, and we would assume that this book, if it's one author that wrote the whole thing, all of these, basically the former prophets, probably wrote it around the time of the exile of the nation of Israel. So in Israel's history, how we understand this, we're covering a 400-year time period, then we're going to get to the kings, and then around 586 BC, the nation is going to be exiled for their sin. And the, the nation kind of at that point is really... No longer, it, it's reached its point, right? And it's a, just a downward trajectory. So that's a really significant moment. And that's, um, we'll get to that towards the end of the story. But that's probably when this book was written. And it was written by an author who was trying to tell this people in exile, this is why you're here. You want to know why you've experienced all this stuff? Well, let's look back at your history, okay? So I think that's probably the timeline that it would have uh, been written. So to the initial audience would have been Jews no longer living in Israel. They're living in Babylon, okay? 
Uh, It covers nearly 400 years of Israel's history. The summary of the book, I'd summarize it this way. We've talked about how it's, it's one of the saddest books in the Old Testament. It seems to show the rapid progression of sin amongst the people as they fail to keep the covenant by obeying the Lord and completely removing the inhabitants of the land. That's going to be the problem. They don't do as God said, and therefore they have, uh, they will be a thorn in their side. So we have some really graphic accounts, especially at the end of the book, of, of how sin had so permeated their society. Uh, you've heard the quote from Ravi Zacharias, right, that says, uh, sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's the nation of Israel. And ironically, that's Ravi Zacharias as well. Um, but, but we see that happen in the nation of Israel. Um, Israel, because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, they will experience the discipline of the Lord. And this time, the discipline of the Lord is going to come through outward nations, right? These nations will rise up against them and will oppress them for their sin, okay? The structure of the book, the book is really divided in two, the first 16 chapters and then chapter 17 through 21. The first 16 chapters are dominated by kind of a cycle, uh, and a, a couple of phrases. The first phrase is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we see this, uh, this phrase, and then we see another phrase that happens after that. The people of Israel cried to the Lord, and then after that, the Lord raises up a deliverer. And so that's kind of the cycle that happens with each judge. We're introduced to each judge through this refrain. They did what was evil. They cried to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. So that's, that's the, how the first book seems to be structured. Or the first half of the book. Then the second portion, verse chapter 17 through 21, are structured around the repeated phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. And then at the, there's four of those statements, the first and the last one, both end with, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So they're kind of bookending that, right? That, that there's no good godly leadership, and this is how everybody lives. They do exactly what they want and what they think is right. There is a cyclical pattern, especially in the, in the first 16 chapters, a cyclical pattern in the life of the nation of Israel. Uh, so I put that in your notes. This is from uh, Jensen, not from me, but it goes like this. First, there's rest. The nation experiences rest from their enemies. So we see that at the end of Joshua, right? They went in and conquered. They had rest for a number of years. But then there's rebellion. So the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and they rebel against the Lord. Then there's retribution. So the Lord gives them over to the hand of their enemies where they are afflicted for a number of years. Then there's repentance. So the people cry out to the Lord. And then finally, there's restoration where the Lord raises up a judge as a deliverer. Okay, so that's kind of the cycle. Now, this is a downward cycle, though. If you think about a drain, right, circling a drain, that's what it is. It's not just staying the same. It's going downward. Each time they go around the loop, they seem to get worse and worse and worse. That's kind of the progress that's happening in the, in the book. Okay, and then finally, before we jump into the book, we just need to talk about who are the judges. Okay, it's named judges because of judges, right? Uh, the judges are not, and, and I think we probably know this. These are not uh, like the judges established in Exodus 18. Moses needed help deciding cases, and so he asked for, uh, he had, had men help him settle those cases, or like we don't, we have judges in our system, right, that settle disputes and uh, hear cases and things like that. These are really military and political leaders is what they are. They're, they're military uh, deliverers. They are not 
like prophets either. They're not religious leaders. Um, they're two different, two different offices. And as we'll see, many of the judges are pretty questionable in character, right? They're not, they're not exactly good guys. But these guys, like the prophets, are raised up by the Lord and empowered by his Spirit for a specific purpose. So there are four similarities I think we find between all of the judges. First of all, they're sin restrainers. Um, and what I mean by that is that Israel rebels against the Lord, and for their sin of rebellion, the Lord brings judgment. And this, again, causes them to cry to the Lord, so the Lord raises up a deliverer. And as the, the Lord brings rest to the nation, there's a period where sin is restrained in a sense, right? That the people have rest, they're living in obedience to a degree, so they're, they're sin restrainers. But uh, as we get to the last two lengthy judge accounts with Jephthah and Samson, uh, there's, there's no uh, account of the people crying to the Lord. So again, you see that cycle, they're, going, they're getting worse. Uh, secondly, they're salvation bringers. So the Lord always raises up the judge to deliver Israel from the hand of their oppressors. So over and over, I mean, we got what, 12, I think 12 judges, uh, the Lord brings deliverance through his person. And, and here we see like the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the faithfulness of God, that he continues to respond to the people's cries, right? That he hears them and he brings, brings salvation through them. That's my next point. Did you read my notes? <laughs> right, yeah. So, the thir- Yeah, exactly, right. Third, they're underwhelming or unlikely heroes, and they really are. I mean, so we've got a left-handed guy, we've got a woman, we've got a really cowardly Gideon, we've got uh, Samson who has all the outward appearances but is a very morally corrupt person. Shamgar, right, yeah, and then unlikely weapons, right, as we'll see, a ox goad, a jaw of a donkey, right, these are your normal fighting tools, right, when you go to war, that's what you're thinking about, okay, um, so they're underwhelming and unlikely heroes, which, as we'll see as we get into, into Samuel, when the nation chooses a king, they choose a king that's the tall, dark, handsome guy, Saul, right, and when the Lord chooses a person, it's never that, right, it's David, it's uh, Gideon hiding, right? So the Lord's person is always different, you know, what, what the Lord says about David. Man looks on the outward appearance, but what does the Lord look at? The heart, right? Yep. And then finally, they're all sinners. Every judge is a sinner because we are all sinners born in sin, but several of these judges are not what we would consider moral leaders, and especially the kinds of leaders Israel needs. So when we get to the end of the book and we hear that refrain, uh, every man does what it there's no king in Israel. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. As we've talked about before, as the leaders of the nation go, so go the nation, right? As they are immoral, uh, godless, sinful people, so do the people follow in the same same pattern, okay? So that's kind of a summary. Yes? So if Well, we'll get to that when we see Samson, right? That, uh, that the Lord uh, often allows and uses the sinfulness of those people to further his purposes. They're not opposed to it, right? So even, you know, you think about, um, and we don't always understand why. Think about all the horrible murderers down through history. Think about Nero persecuting the church. Uh, I don't know how many Christians were murdered under his reign, but what did that do to further the gospel, you know, so, so even evil 
God uses to bring about his, his purposes. So how, how? I can't fully reconcile that, but he does. Yep, good question. Okay, so let's just work through an outline of the book here. Um, and I think I put this in your notes if you kind of want to follow along. So the first two chapters we see, uh, it starts chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight them? So we see a, in this first chapter that the conquest continues on. What had begun in Joshua is, is still taking place. And so in chapter 1, we, hear, uh, we read of Judah and Simeon. So these are two of the tribes of Israel. They're largely successful in conquering the land and taking possession of the land the Lord had given them. You remember in Numbers, we, ha- we talked about the allotments of the land. So each tribe was given a specific region. They had legal descriptions saying, this is your territory. And each tribe was to go in obedience and take that specific piece of land. When we get to the end of the book, we'll see Dan is not taking the land they were supposed to. They're going in way far north getting a piece they shouldn't have, but that's what they're supposed to be doing. So Judah and Simeon are largely doing this, uh, but they don't fully drive out in the, ha- the inhabitants. And then starting like in verse 27, we see that the writer lists seven other tribes that don't do what they're supposed to do, right? So it says, the, this tribe did not remove the inhabitants. This tribe did not remove the inhabitants of the land. So they are disobedient to the Lord in not conquering the land. And their not fully taking the land is sin, right? That's, that's, that's what's happened. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Balcom, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Right? So they have sinned. They have, they have uh, broken the Lord's command. So what the Lord says is, I am not going to drive these nations out from amongst you. Rather, they will stay in your midst and they will be a thorn in your side. They will continue to afflict you uh, for, for years to come. Now, remember the the... For the, the Israelites were to remove all of the Canaanites, the people of the land. Um, and the Canaanites, the problem was is they, had, they had many gods, and everything the Canaanites did was completely opposed to what Israel was supposed to do as far as worship goes. Um, so they had many gods. They were polytheistic. Israel worships one god, right? Uh, their worship involved deviant sexual practices, and you think about what the, the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no adultery, right? Uh, so it's very, uh, you can't just sleep with everybody in the name of your, your religion. Um, the Canaanites had tons of images. Well, what was the, the, the second command, right? The first, uh, you shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make a graven image. Well, so for, for Israel to not remove these, the, the Canaanites, their worship practices were totally opposed to what Israel was supposed to, how they were supposed to worship. So through Israel's idolatry, Israel breaks the commands to worship Yahweh alone, love him alone, and love their neighbors, right? Which is the summation of the law, as they they don't do these things, okay? Um, Jim Hamilton pointed out that if the Lord does not give Israel into the hand of their enemies, the Lord will be unfaithful uh, to his word because he's promised when you disobey there are consequences for it. The punishment will surely fall upon you. 
Then we see at the end of chapter 2, the death of Joshua. Uh, Notice especially at the end of verse 10, after Joshua arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, which connects us right back to the end of Joshua, right? Where uh, that, that... that as long as there was a generation that knew the Lord, what'd they do? They walked with the Lord, but as soon as that generation died off, they forgot. So then we get to chapter 2, verse 11, through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And these are probably the most important, this is probably the most important section of the book because it's, it's giving us a summation of everything we're going to read. So we understand it a little bit better, okay? Um, Look at, um, let's just, let's read a couple of these verses here. So look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So I'm just going to point out a couple of things, and you can look at the text and see these things. First of all, notice in verse 11, idolatry is evil right? The Lord calls what they're doing evil. They're whoring after Baal is, is evil. Look at verse 14. Because of this great evil, the Lord's anger is kindled against them, and they're going to receive a judgment for their sin, okay? Um, they will not prosper. They're not going to find victory over their enemies. Uh, the, their, their work in dispossessing them is going to be even greater now because of their sin, Look at verse 15. Their failures in battle are going to be because of their sin, not because of their, the strength of their enemies. Uh, look at verse 16. The Lord raises up these judges as gracious gifts to deliver the people. Uh, this is very similar, right, to, to back in, in Exodus when the Lord appears to Moses and said, I've heard the cry of my people and I am sending you to deliver them, right? So the same thing is, is happening here. Uh, look at verse 18. Again, the Lord always hears the cry of his people. And this connected back, connects us back to Exodus 34, where the Lord goes before Moses and declares his name to him. Right? He says, uh, the, I am the Lord, the Lord. Uh, uh, oh, I, I, I can't quote it perfectly, so I'm going to mess it up. Uh, 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So the Lord, when he is delivering them and and bringing justice, that's part of his character. But at the same time, when they rebel against the Lord, he can't. He doesn't just overlook that, right? He brings brings judgment upon the people. And then look at chapter two, verse twenty-two. Notice that the Lord is going to test Israel through this. He will test them by their obedience. That's what the nations are going to be do doing. Uh, look at chapter three and verse two. There's a practical reason as well. The Lord is teaching people who don't know how to fight how to fight. Israel had to be a, a, a conquering nation, so they're going to learn this. And then look at chapter 3 and verse 6. Uh, Israel's disobedience to the command not to intermarry. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord says, don't marry the, in, don't marry your sons to the daughters. Don't give your daughters to the sons of the inhabitants of the land. Why? Because they will lead you astray. 
This happened at Numbers 25 with Baal Peor and Balaam convincing uh, 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 Balak to uh, get them to intermarry. And what happens? The people commit idolatry and the Lord brings judgment against them. Okay, chapter 3 then, starting in verse 7, we're introduced to the first judge, and this goes all the way through chapter 16. So we call this uh, the time of the judges. And again, this is dominated by that refrain and this uh, of the, the people did evil, the Lord raised up a deliverer, and then it's that downward spiral of sin. It just keeps getting worse and worse. So the first judge is Othniel. This is Caleb's nephew. Caleb, you remember, was the one of the two good spies Went into the land with Joshua. Hey, Aaron knows the song. Thank you. You must have been gone when we, when we did that. Nobody else knew the song but, but me. So, yeah, yeah. It's a camp song. That's why. Uh, so Othniel is, is like Caleb. Caleb was, was a zealous guy. You know, in chapter 1, he had a special allotment given to him, and he's ready to just go in and take the land. He believes what the Lord has said, and he's just marching on. And Othniel seems to be the same kind of character, right? That he believes what the Lord has said, and he uh, has that same kind of zeal. They're oppressed by the king of Mesopotamia. Othniel battles against them, and the Lord gives them victory. And then it says that while he was judge, there's 40 years of rest. And again, this is an important connection. And so we think about Israel as a new Adam living in the land, which is a new Eden, there's a period of rest. That's how God has designed the world to work, right? God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. Here, Israel, there's a period of, of war, and then they have rest. So it's the same kind of, of picture that structures Israel's life and, uh, and that. Although, as we get to the end, and we see with Jephthah and Samson, there's no rest, okay? Because the people have gone so far down. Ehud, one of the coolest stories and characters in the Bible, right? Uh, Israel again sins. They're oppressed by the, the Moabites. So the Lord raises up Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. As we'll see, Benjamin is going to be a kind of a problematic tribe. They're going to uh, uh, be a, a little tribe. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, okay? Um, Ehud is a, is a left-handed assassin who goes in and stabs in the gut Eglon, who is a big fat king and is bowels spilled out around him and he leaves well he does this while he's like in the bathroom right or or he's on the roof and he goes out and tells his guards uh, oh the king's still in the bathroom he's he's probably relieving himself uh so interesting story right when i taught this to youth they actually liked that that story they thought that was kind of cool um Ehud then leads Israel in battle. They have a great victory over the Moabites, and they have rest for 80 years after the period of Ehud. Then we get to Shamgar, chapter 3, verse 31. We have one verse, and it just says that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. So an ox goad would be like a cattle prod. You know, if you think, uh, if you've ever worked cattle, uh, we use, you know, you have like the shocker. Uh, this is a little different. This, that's that's a quite an impressive feat, really. 600 people with a cattle prod. Uh, Then we get to Deborah in chapter 4 and chapter 5. This time they are oppressed by the Canaanites and the commander of their army is Sisera. Uh, Deborah is not only a judge, but she's also a prophet. So people would go up to to her. She would communicate the word of the Lord, but she also judged the people and that she would help settle cases and things like that. Um, in chapter 4, verse 6, she instructs Barak. With, so Barak was the, the commander of the, the Israelites, instructed him what the Lord wanted him to do and assured him of a great victory. But Barak is kind of a 
coward, right? He's kind of a cowardly guy, and he's like, I'm not going to battle unless you come with me, right? So, <laughs> yeah, not exactly the picture of a man's man, right? Um, so in Barak, we see a man who fails to believe the promise of God and would only obey if Deborah accompanies him uh, into, into battle. And so then we're also introduced to Jael. Uh, if you read through chapter 4, Oh, where is it? Verse 17. So Sisera is the king. He's fleeing. He runs and he hides in a tent. And here another woman, Jael, knows who he is, has him lay down, take a nap, and then drives a tent peg into his head, right? So like, is you know, it's graphic. If Judges was a movie, it would be an R, right? Rated R movie for sure. Um, so uh, Jael does this. So the Lord brings deliverance here through two women, right? Deborah and Jael obeying the word of the Lord, believing the Lord has delivered these enemies into their hand, and they're, they're acting upon that. And then there's a song in chapter five. And in so much of Israel's history of songs is meant to teach them. It's meant to remind them this is what God has done. So you think about... Um, the song uh, uh, Moses writes when they, when they cross the Red Sea, right? It reminds them of how they were delivered. Um, they sing the song about the Lord providing water in the wilderness, spring up a well. Uh, and here, Deborah sings a song as well, reminding the nation of what God has done for them, how he has delivered them. Notice um, specifically, let's see, where is it? In verse 20 like of chapter five. Well, first of all, it, it just references the first couple verses of the song reference that Yahweh has delivered Israel as a nation, right? He is their Lord. But notice like verse 20, from heaven, the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. So it seems to be there's a, again, a recognition. It is Yahweh who's brought, brought deliverance, uh, not the might of Israel. Chapter six, verses one through 10, we see an unnamed prophet arises. And he, so we see the cycle again, right? Verse one, the people do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse six, the people of Israel cried for help. But this un, un, uh, unnamed prophet comes and tells the people that they are experiencing oppression because they've not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So if you look at verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So why are you having problems, Israel? The Lord is telling you, you're not obeying. So that one raises up Gideon, right? One of the prophets we're probably more familiar with, um, again, because of unusual battle methods and because we all probably identify with Gideon in many ways, right? We're, do, we struggle to believe what God has, has said at times, right? So Gideon, his name is going to get changed to Jerubbabel. So as you read later on, you'll see he's referenced sometimes as Jerubbabel. It's the same name. Um, but again, another unlikely character, right? He's hiding out in his wine press. Uh, he doesn't want to be in battle. He receives a call from the Lord. He's tentative and hesitant, and so he asks the Lord for a number of signs. Of course, these are the, the fleece. Put out a fleece. It's, uh, you know, leave it dry, make the ground wet, and then make it wet and the ground dry. And so he has to have a sign from the Lord as to uh, confirming that the Lord has called him to do this. He's given this other name, Jerubbabel, which means let Baal contend with him. And that happens because one of the first things Gideon does is he goes and he tears down the altar of Baal that his father had built. And so the, the townspeople will rise up against him and they say, uh, against his father, and they, who's done this? And they say, Gideon. And his father convinces them not to, to go and 
kill him or bring justice. And he says, let Baal contend with him. So that's the name Jerubbabel. That's where it comes from. The Lord uses Gideon and a little tiny army, right, to deliver. He has all these men gathered together and he shrinks it down to just 300 guys who lap water like a dog, which I was thinking about that. You have to be kind of a strange duck, right? If you get to a river and you're thirsty and you're going to drink like a dog, I would use my hands. That just seems more logical to me. And maybe that's why, like, how many uh, guys get turned away? There's only 300. It's a very small percentage of people that are dog lappers, you know. So maybe something's wrong with those people. I don't know. I'm just maybe reading into the text a little bit, little bit too much. Uh, we see Gideon defeat, the, defeat Midian in chapter 7, and then in chapter 8, he chases down these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, and uh, so he, basically what happens is he, there's a, a great victory that is brought through Gideon, and Israel uh, decides, hey, let's make Gideon our king. And Gideon says, no, I don't, I don't want to be your king. I'm not going to be your king. Uh, so he turns that down, but there's a problem. He leads them into idolatry. So in chapter 8, verse 22, he builds an ephod, which is an image. And, and he, he builds this thing, which will become a thorn, a snare for, for uh, the nation of Israel. So even though he's used mightily by the Lord, at the end of his life, he doesn't appear to be faithfully obedient to Yahweh, right? He's, he's made an image. He's broken the covenant uh, he has many wives um, and an, an, an idolater. However, during his rule, uh, the land has, has rest. One of the things that you think about with these judges is there are some seriously like mixed messages with these guys. Uh, so for like Gideon, he believes Yahweh and he gets victory in battle and he knows he's not supposed to be king, but yet he doesn't believe the Lord enough to put away his idol, right? So there's some some confusion with them. The, the judges, and, and this is really the story of the book, their obedience is always partial, it's never complete, and it's always like tentative and, and it's, it's never lasting, okay? So that leads us to Gideon's son in chapter 9, Abimelech, and I call him a wannabe king, right? So Gideon doesn't want the honor of being king, so Abimelech says, well, I do. And so he commits murder, murders all of his brothers uh, so that he can, he can become the king. This is the one guy in the section that is not a, a judge. Um, Abimelech rules over Israel for three years, and instead of the Lord sending a spirit upon him to help like he did with all the judges, he sends an evil spirit upon him. Chapter 9, verse 23, we see that this uh, evil spirit between him and the leaders of Shechem, they conspire against him to kill him, okay? Um, Abimelech, when you go and read this account, you realize he is exactly the wrong kind of king for Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 gives those stipulations. This is what a king in Israel is to look like. And Abimelech is not that, right? He, he gains his power through murder and intrigue. Uh, he is not a worshiper of, of Yahweh. Uh, he leads them further into idolatry by setting up Gideon's ephod, okay? Ultimately, the Lord returns the evil of Abimelech on his own head, literally, right? Because a woman drops a millstone on his head, and that kills him. So another uh, violent and grotesque death, recorded in the book of Judges. Then we get to Tola and Jer. We don't have much information on them in chapter 10, the first five uh, verses. And then we have another uh, summary set of verses in chapter 10, verses 6 through 18. So like the 
in chapter 6, this prophet comes and, and just says, this is why you're experiencing the oppression that you are. So the same thing happens here. Uh, this time they are given over to the hand of the Philistines. That's their oppressor. Um, notice in chapter 10 and verse 15, when the people cry out to the Lord, they put away their foreign gods, uh, or uh, they put away their foreign gods. So if you look, let's see here. Uh, yeah, ten fifteen. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems to good good to you. Only please deliver this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord and he became impatient over the misery of, of Israel. Okay, so, Lord, so the people are repentant again. So this brings us to the next uh, judge, Jephthah in chapter 11 and 12. Um, Jephthah is a, another conflicted character. Um, he is a, a warrior, He's a, he's a fighter, but he's the son of a prostitute. So, right, in that society, wouldn't exactly be, yeah, acceptable, right? He's not, uh, wouldn't be first choice. Let's, let's put it that way, right? Uh, he's been chased out of his father's house, and he goes and he lives in the land of Tob with, as the text says, worthless fellows. So, again, not somebody you'd want your daughter to date, probably, okay? Um, what we read in chapter 11 is a series of communications between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites. They send a series of messages back and forth. And essentially, Jephthah is wondering, why are you guys coming up to battle against Israel? Why? What have we done to you? How have we sinned against you? Um, why are you making war against us? However, they, for, they refuse to listen, uh, and the Lord gives Jephthah a great victory. Okay, So they, they, they decide, we're going go to go ahead and go to war, but the Lord delivers Israel. Now, there's a problem in chapter 11. And you look at verse 29, and this is Jephthah's tragic vow. Uh, so Jephthah says, if you deliver us today, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. So then they go and they get this great, great victory. The problem is, is that when Jephthah goes home, the first thing coming out of his house is what? His daughter, right? And so he realizes what he's done. And so he, he allows her to go and mourn her virginity, and she, she does this for a number of months, and then he sacrifices his daughter. Um, that's problematic, right? That's not in any way in accordance with what Yahweh has prescribed. This is not an acceptable sacrifice. And so what you see, I think, in Jephthah is just, a, again, a real, like, syncretization in a sense, right, uh, of, of paganism, with the worship of Yahweh. So, uh, because you think about, you go back to Leviticus and all the, the instructions for sacrifices, never was a human to be sacrificed, okay? Yeah. I've read this before and I've had such a hard time with it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because God always forbids right. human sacrifices. Yes. Boy, I, I don't know, yeah. Right. Yeah, well, I think that the there's no um, commendation of what he does. Uh, it, it seems to be kind of, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it, yeah he, he did what was wrong. I think that's the, the bottom line that he... And, and, and God allowed it, as we're going to see like with Samson and as we get to the end of the book, which gets even worse, 
right? That the, the Lord allows these things to happen. <laughs> That's what I told you. It's not exactly like, it's not as heartwarming, right, you know? Uh, but it's here for a reason, and that's, that's what we, what we want to point out. It shows our sinfulness. It shows, it shows the, how much the nation of Israel needed the Lord. Uh, all right, we got to fly because I'm running out of time. Ah! That's how it goes. Uh, then we get to Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Again, nothing much about them. And then finally we get to Samson, right? Samson is probably, again, one of the, the most conflicted judge, uh, unique, right? His birth is predicted by an angel of the Lord. So not many characters in the Bible that that happens. You know, an angel of the Lord appears to Samson's dad and says, you're going to have a child. He's to be a Nazarite. So a Nazarite was one that was to be specifically set apart to the Lord. Uh, in Numbers, uh, what, I can't remember what chapter it is. Uh, there are the instructions given for, or Numbers chapter 6, instructions for what a Nazarite was uh, to be, you know, they abstained from alcohol, they didn't cut their hair, uh, they stayed away from dead things, things like that. So the Lord uses Samson through his, his birth uh, to antagonize the Philistines, okay? Um, but he has a problem, right? And he has a, a penchant for Philistine women, right? That's his, his kryptonite, if I can speak that way, right? So he marries a Philistine, Philistine woman, and he violates the Lord's command there not to intermarry with the people of the land, but he does it. Uh, he visits prostitutes, falls in love with Delilah, so he is just not your picture of marital fidelity. Um, but ultimately, through Delilah, she do, seduces Samson. He's overcome by the Philistines. They shave his head because they realize this is a, a source of power for him. Uh, he's taken captive. His eyes are gouged out. Ultimately, his hair grows back. He's brought into the Philistine temple and in one last feat, brings the temple down upon, uh, upon uh, himself, killing all inside. Uh, again, Paul House summarizes Samson really well. And, he, and, and really what you see, he says, in Samson is a microcosm of the nation of Israel. So he says this, Like the people of his day, Samson ends his life in bondage, doing everything he can to strike a blow against his foes, everything that is except committing unreservedly to the God who has responded mercifully to each of the nation's heartfelt pleas for deliverance. All right? So whatever I could do to kill the Philistines, as long as I don't have to wholeheartedly serve you. That's kind of the, what, what happens here. Uh, Todd Chipman said, Samson's leadership points to the fact that God's purposes to establish his corporate people go beyond and often conspicuously encompass the mor- moral failure of those whom he is called to lead. Okay? I think that's really important. When we think about Jephthah and the things she does and Gideon and all of these different people, this is important, right? We're meant to see this. And he says, Samson's behavior was typical of Israel in the time of the judges. He did whatever he wanted. Despite Samson's moral weakness, the spear of the Lord came upon him to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So the Lord uses unlikely characters, even with all of their flaws, to bring about his purposes. Okay? And that's what we see in Israel's history, and that's, what, that's, that's the whole history of the world, right? The Lord using wicked, evil people to bring about his, his purposes. Okay? So, the last judge, Samson, the people are doing evil, but there is no refrain that the people cried out to the Lord. And so that sets us up for the final four chapters, starting in chapter 17, and I've entitled these, The Days of No Kings, okay? Um, These last four chapters are going to show the total chaos and degradation that happens in the land. And really, even a king won't be enough to fix Israel's problems, right? Uh, when, they, when they have a king, 
they will still fall into sin. What they need are new hearts. They need hearts that are soft to the Lord so they can obey Him. Um, there are two stories in this account, or in the two two stories in these last four chapters. And what we see here is not an outside nation coming and oppressing Israel. What do we see? Israel oppressing themselves. Right, the, it has gotten so bad that it is that. I think these two stories are chosen because it gives us a general picture of what was pervasive throughout the entire nation. Okay, so the first one is in chapter seventeen and eighteen. This is a story of Micah, a Levite in the tribe of Dan. So we don't know who Micah is, but what we know of Micah is this: that he steals money from his money from his mother. So what is he? Is he obeying Yahweh by stealing from his mother? No, right. That's, foundational, right? Don't steal. So he steals, uh, steals from his mother, uh, disobeys his, or does not honor his mother, and then returns it. And she's glad he's returned it. And because of her, she's, she's overjoyed by this. And how she gives thanks for this is, well, I'll turn it into an idol, right? So like every one of the commands is broken, like right here in this, okay? So she takes some of the silver and she makes an idol out of it. So then Micah, meets a Levite. You remember the Levites were the tribe that was uh, supposed to uh, oversee the worship of the nation of Israel. So he meets a Levite who's not fulfilling this, this role and adopts him into his family so that he will be their family priest. Thinks he's going to have blessing by having uh, a, a, a priest in the household. Okay, And he says, chapter 17, verse 13, the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So they are so far outside of what God has, has prescribed. Then we're introduced to the tribe of Dan in chapter 18. And the tribe of Dan has not taken possession of the land that they are allotted. So we're now hundreds of years after, uh, well, probably hundreds of years after Joshua and they first entered the land. And Dan still has not been obedient in that way. Um, so spies are sent out by the tribe of Dan, and they come across this Levite, and they say, would you inquire of the Lord, should we go up and should we take this city? And they're headed north to where the Sidonians are, okay? And I think I put on your notes, there's a map there. The allotment Dan was supposed to have was in the south, and they're headed all the way up to the north. So they're not even going to possess the land the Lord has, has given to them. So what, Dan ha- what happens is that Dan decides to go up against the Sidonians, but they decide, we don't really want to go without Micah's Levite. So we're going to take him with him. And they say, wouldn't it be better for you to be Levite over a whole tribe, a priest of a whole tribe, than just of one, uh, one family? Okay, And you see that in chapter 18 and verse 19. So ultimately what happens, the tribe of Dan captures the city of Laish. They rename it Dan. And what do they do? They set up Micah's idol there and they worship it, okay? So they have, uh, again, totally gone off the rails from what they were supposed to do. So in this account, we see not only the moral corruption of an individual, but an entire tribe. Not only Micah, but the entire tribe of Dan. Again, Todd Chipman said, the story of Micah and his priest in Judges 17 and 18 reveals that many in Israel thought God's blessing could be secured by partial conformity to various elements of their cultic system, like having a Levite as a household priest. We got a Levite. We know Levites are supposed to uh, help order worship. Well, it's, the Lord will bless us if we have one, right? Um, they're wrong. Finally, in chapter 19 and 21, we get probably the saddest story in, in the Bible, 
in, in some ways, right? And this is a Levite, his concubine, and the tribe of Benjamin. It is interesting, right, that in both of these accounts, you have the Levites involved. So again, uh, they were like spiritual leaders for the nation of Israel. And these guys are involved in some really messed up stuff, okay? Um, again, chapter 19, verse 1, we're reminded there's no moral leader in the nation. And first, we're introduced to a Levite who has a concubine. Now, this was not allowed by the Mosaic law, because a concubine was basically a, a, a mistress. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, it, not, not something that he should be doing. Uh, this is not his lawful wife. Anyway, this concubine runs away from him. She goes down to Judah. He was further up north. Goes down to Judah, where she is from, and he eventually goes after her. And so, on his way home, they decide not to spend the night in a Jebusite city. So, that would have been not a city of the Jews, right? It would have been a city of the Canaanites. They decide instead, let's go to Gibeah and stay in that city because that it belongs to one of the tribes of Israel, specifically the tribe of Benjamin, okay? It was under their control. And there we see a scene very reminiscent of Genesis 19 and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? When the angels came to Lot and they're staying there and what happens? The men of the city come and beat on the door and say, let us have relations with them. So the same thing happens here, um, the men of Gibeah surround the house where the Levite is saying they desire to have homosexual relations with him. And in response to this, the, the Levite sends out his concubine and says, do with her as you wish. And they rape her all night long. Okay? Uh, in the morning, she's found dead on the doorstep of the house. And the Levite, as, uh, let's see, and the Levite comes outside and Paul House says this. He says, he's outraged that the mob has killed her when he exposed her to the killers in the first place. The difference between his abuse of the woman and the crowds is one of degree, not of kind, right? So he's like, who could do such a terrible thing? Hold on, like, look in a mirror, buddy. You delivered her to these guys, okay? So this is uh, uh, just barbaric and disgusting, but it gets worse, right? He then dismembers her body, cuts it up into pieces, and sends a piece to every tribe in the, in the land, almost as to say, what a horrible thing has been done in Israel, which is true, but he's participating in it, right? Like, it's like, what in the world is going on here, okay? Um, so in response to this, in chapter 20, all the tribes of Israel come out against Dan. Uh, the, the, uh, or, yeah, is that what the, all the tribes... The 20 verse 1, Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. So they come out, and they decide we're going to go up to battle against Benjamin. Right? They, they, maybe they've decided this is, this is too far, so we're going to go out to battle. They have a, they're defeated at first by the Benjamin, Benjamin, Benjaminites. I can't say that. Um, Israel destroys 25,000 men, though, ultimately, from the tribe of Benjamin and many of their, their cities. So, the tribe of Benjamin has been, it, it was already the smallest tribe, now it's even smaller. So there's a problem in their, their eyes. Uh, if the tribe of Benjamin disappears, well, then they'll have no more allotment. Uh, the Lord, they won't get their, the blessing. So, because of the civil war, uh, they decide they have to do something about this. No, uh, you look at chapter 21, in verse 18, it says, the problem is that, that there's no wives for the remaining Benjaminites. And none of the other tribes are willing to give their daughters to the Benjaminites to be married off. So they, they concoct a scheme. Uh, first of all, they, uh, 
They take 400 women from Jabesh Gilead. You see that in 21, 8 through 12, because they basically say, well, who didn't come to battle? Well, let's go take their wives and let's give them to the Benjaminites, right? Kind of, kind of messed up. But however, that's not enough uh, uh, women for the tribe of Benjamin. So they decide, well, let's, let's have the Benjaminites go and kidnap some girls. So they say that, that uh, every year there are girls that come out and dance in the fields uh, at a feast to the Lord. When you see them out there dancing, just run and grab one for yourself, right? Again, like this is problematic, right? At the very, very, very least. So they do that. Uh, 21, 21 tells us that that's what they do, okay? And then it just stops. That's the end of the book, right? So we get to the end, verse 25, and there, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because you see before that in verse 24, they all departed and they went home. They take their wives, Israel goes home, everything's back to normal, so to speak, okay? A couple of things just from this last account. C.A. Miller said, when sin infected the culture, it corrupted the God-ordained relationships between men and women with women, women suffering from abusive male dominance, right? Uh, again, and I, and I think I mentioned this before, people will often say, oh, the Bible's patriarchal and, and diminishes women. Actually, it elevates them, Right? When, when we don't follow God's design, disaster ensues. And the, the, the least, the, the weakest of uh, society are uh, hurt in that. Secondly, the author of Judges does not comment on this account, just like he did in many of them. We don't have specific accounts. And I think this is because the people are receiving the fulfillment of the promise in chapter 10 and verse 13. Again, Paul House says, God leaves Israel to be delivered by the gods in whom they trust and lets the people be crushed under the weight of their own sin, which is the only substance their gods possess. This Israel's sin, their God delivers them into even greater and more depraved acts. So it's almost, it's a Romans 1 thing, right? I'm gonna, you've gone this far, I'm just gonna let you have it right? You, you're going to trust in Baal to deliver you? Well, here you go. And it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. There's no scarier place to be than to be delivered over to the wrath of God and to be delivered over to your own sin. So in conclusion, three things, I guess if we, could, we could sum it up this way. First of all, Israel needs a real king. They need a righteous king. The judges were temporary, mostly unrighteous rulers. Israel needs a righteous ruler. They need a king and a moral leader, one who is like the king prophesied to come from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. You remember that, that blessing that Jacob passes down upon his son and says, of, out of Judah will arise a ruler with a scepter in his hand. Okay? Uh, from, that, from that line, the scepter will not depart. All the people will be obedient to him. Okay? Uh, the same king is described by Balaam in Numbers chapter 25. He will deliver Israel from their enemies. Okay? And then, secondly, for that initial audience who is reading these accounts, so you're a, you're a Jew, exiled from the land, and you're now living in Babylon, you're going, why am I here? What has happened? Okay, these uh, stories tell them why they're, they're at. So Jim Hamilton said, the author seems to be tracing the nation's decline in order to demonstrate the justice of God's punishment of Israel's sin and the horror of the flagrant sinfulness of Israel makes Yahweh's patient mercy shine all the more brightly right? Over and over, we see the mercy of Yahweh to them. And, and they should look at that and be like, wow, he was patient. 
but at the same time, their sin has also brought this, okay? And then it does, it closes with that statement, in those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, okay? And that will set us up, though, next time for a king, right? Uh, A good king, as we will see in David. Well, first a bad king, then a good king, okay? That's Judges.